Good morning, everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. So glad you're here. If you're able, would you stand? We're going to spend some time worshiping through song today.
morning, God, we come to you. We come to you now and just take a breath. Mm. It's amazing the Advent season that is supposed to be this time of rest and reflection becomes the craziest, busiest season ever. And so we just now take a breath and we breathe in the grace and new mercies today and we breathe out gratitude for who you are and for what you've done, for what you're doing in our lives, what we can see and what we cannot see. We lift our gaze and our focus on you and you alone. And we say, whatever we put our hope in this week, we now repent of that and put it back on you. May you be the king of our hearts, the king of our lives, and the king in this room today. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. So glad you're here. Greet the community around you and students. You're heading off to the Cove with Ryan, my younger brother over there. Come on. <laughs> Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to Holy Community Church. My name is Ian O'Mara, the Director of Community Life. How many people have their bulletins this morning? Uh, wave them high, wave them high. Yes. Well, if you flip to the inside cover is our prayer and connection card. We're a church that's rooted in prayer, and we know and believe that we are better together. So we take time every Sunday to fill this out, even if it's just jotting your first and last name, just to let us know it's here. Or if you're giving us a prayer request, we have a team that gets together on Tuesdays and a team throughout the week that prays for these requests. So no prayer is too big, a new prayer, prayer is too small. So we're going to take about 10 to 15 seconds. If you reach in the, the chair in front of you, there's a pen. Go ahead, grab that. Open up your bulletins and go ahead and fill that out. We're going to take 10 to 15 seconds. Thank you for taking the time to do that, and just you can go ahead and finish if you're still writing. That bulletin folds in half, and they come right apart. You could take out that prayer connection card, fold it in half if you want privacy, and the ushers will come by at the end of the service and collect these. If you're a first-time visitor, you can go ahead and put those in the offering plate. We really appreciate people taking the time to do this. Well, Monday, December 24th, let me say that, Monday. Christmas Eve is a Monday. 
which means kids are getting out of school on Friday. But Monday, December 24th, is Christmas Eve. We're going to have two intergenerational services here at LJCC at 4.30 and 6 p.m. Make sure you mark your calendars. We'll have normal Sunday programming with the 9 and 10.45 service, but Christmas Eve will be here at, 10, uh, at 4.30 and 6 p.m. Come early. We're going to have some family festivities, a photo booth, cookies, and coffee. It's just going to be an amazing time, so we look forward to seeing you on Monday, December 24th. Who can believe 2019 is right around the corner? Okay, 2018 maybe? We're still kind of living into the 18. 19 is right upon us. So in 2019, we're going to kick off a financial class. It's going to start on January 6th. It's going to be after the second service. There's going to be lunch provided. And if you need childcare, let us know. That will be provided also. So today, RSVP, reserve your spot. It's going to be an amazing time. It's going to be an amazing time to, to, to engage those skills. Maybe you've forgotten or to hone those skills that you need to, to work on, but it's going to be a great time. But please, RSVP, and if you need child care, let us know as soon as possible. What a great time together. Was the worship amazing today or what? Let's give them a round of applause. They were over, overcoming some challenges today, and the Lord is being worshipped. So let's continue our worship with prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much. We thank you so much that you are who you say you are. Lord, in the, in the midst of uh, all the shopping and the, the literal lights in our face and the songs repeated over and over again, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Lord, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, just help us to, to keep you as the focus and not to make all the other stuff part of it. Lord, even when conflict comes or all that other stuff, Lord, that we would just look to you. Lord, just bring us peace in this season. Bring us peace if we're celebrating the season without loved ones or if we're celebrating this season apart from our family. Lord, just no matter what happens, Lord, help us to, to continue to look for you, continue to look to you, and continue to rely on you. Lord, help us to put Christ back into Christmas, that you would be the center. Lord, we just ask this all in your holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, it's a technical detail. Okay. Okay, what was I? So he's talking about giving away free money. So um, <laughs> all the money you want is available. I already gave you the directions for getting it. You get it later. So Advent and our culture becomes very, very thin. Uh, we want to we make it thin and inoffensive. The gospel inherently is, is inspirational and offensive because it shocks us. It says the whole world is wounded and needs a savior. 
Uh, and that is offensive to us because we say, hey, my wound is not that bad. In fact, I'm better than that person, and it doesn't really matter anyway because I am awesome. And so God comes into our world saying, you have a, you have a, a condition that is deadly, and I've come, I've come to give you life, the life that you were created for. So we're trying to understand what's the depth of this narrative, this deep, deep, profound narrative that we celebrate at Christmas gets thinned out and flattened down in our culture to the point that it's sort of irrelevant. Uh, it gets lost in all the other fun, celebrative stuff that we do as a culture. But ultimately, the, the whole point of Christmas is absolutely buried under a mountain of cultural uh, stuff. So what we're trying to do in Advent is to recapture what is the narrative? What is the big deal uh, that would cause us to want to celebrate this, this, this uh, wonderful thing called Christmas? Why do we give gifts? Why do we have these celebrations? What's there to celebrate? And at some point, uh, sitting down, exhausted, halfway through your list, you say, I have no idea why we do this every year. Why do we do this? And so I want to give you a reason for why we do this and remind you and encourage you about why we do this at Advent. So last week we talked about expectation. The, the, the theme uh, is Advent means, and we talked about expectation. Advent comes loaded with expectation. Uh, today we're talking about the fact that Advent means surprise. Next week we'll talk about Advent means conflict. As I said, it's inherently offensive and conflictual. We'll talk about why. And then uh, we'll talk about Advent means wonder, which brings us to Christmas Eve, and I hear it's on Monday. Is that correct? Okay, so it's on Monday, uh, two services here. So surprise. Uh, I have a simple definition of surprise. Uh, surprises are unexpected circumstances we don't control. Uh, is that acceptable? Is a, is a simple functional definition? It's, it, they're unexpected, positive or negative circumstances we don't control. <clears throat> and our reaction to it, let me say simply stated, our reaction to it is one or the other. Uh, either it's shock, we have a shock face. Could you sh make your shock face? Just give us your shock face. Okay, would you turn, just make your shock face, hold it for a second, and just turn around your left and see what other people's shock faces look like. Would you make your shock face right now? <laughs> okay, good. Shock, you've got shock down pretty well. Uh, and then delight. Could you give us your delight face? Okay. Anything you learn has to be immediately applied or it becomes instantly irrelevant. So I'm going to give you two scenarios, uh, one of shock and one of delight, and I want to see if you can guess uh, which one is which by registering on your face, uh, your shock face or your, your delight face. So I'm going to read these two scenarios that I've created, and they may or may not relate to you, but what would that person experiencing this uh, express? So here's, here's the first one. Your car was towed after it was sideswiped by a truck after it was ticketed for legal parking, after you pulled over because it died, which meant you would be late to work, so you left it with a note, you'd be right back, which blew off in the wind, and the officer didn't see a disabled sticker because you were parked in a disabled spot, and your disabled car didn't count, but your ticket does. <laughs> what face do you want to show? Shock. It's a shock face. You got it right. You nailed it. Okay, next one. You just received a call that you won the lottery as you walked into your surprise birthday party. And it's your anniversary, and you've been praying for a baby, and your doctor just confirmed you're pregnant, and your husband just got a raise, and your lab work said the lump isn't cancer, and your book has been accepted for print, and you just received tenure with promotion, and your high school reunion is this weekend. <laughs> you get to go tell all this great stuff at your high school reunion, when everybody else is going, uh, nothing really, uh, what have you been doing? Okay, so Jesus' arrival in Mary and Joseph's life was a mysterious and magnificent surprise, wouldn't you say? 
a magnificent and mysterious uh, surprise. And they had two reactions to it. Can you guess what they would be? You're already experts on this. So to, what were the two things that they might experience? It would be shock or no. Delight. Shock or delight, right? Uh, shock and delight. Look at this wave. This is the time of year that we're going to be seeing some waves like this. Out at Winn Sea, uh, out at the Cove. And it's impressive, isn't it? When you look at these, these waves coming in on these, these winter swells, you think, that is a shock how big that wave is. And, and the people paddling out there, showing off, I mean, surfing in front of their friends, are saying, what was I thinking about coming out to try to catch one of these waves? And so the initial, uh, you know, overwhelming emotion is shock. And then it's the delight when you, when you catch that wave and you watch somebody surfing those waves as you're standing there drinking coffee, right? It's the best way to do it. Hot cocoa and coffee, watching somebody risking their life to entertain you for all of five minutes so you can you know, continue on. Shock and delight is what Joseph and Mary experienced. What were their faces registering? You know, we're, we're kidding about it here, laughing about it, but they had a shocked look at some point, and they had a delighted look at some point, and it was all part of the same experience. Luke 1 tells us about Mary's responses. By the way, the Christmas story, the Christmas narrative, is in the New Testament of the Bible. There's a First Testament, some call it the Old Testament, and a New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, they start off with these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four accounts of Jesus' life. In Matthew and Luke, uh, we see the birth narratives. In each of those, conveniently, it's the first two chapters, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2. I strongly suggest that you, on your own, or with family or friends, or if you're in a life group, read through Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, um, before Christmas. It'll help Advent come alive to you. So we see in Luke chapter 1, Mary's response. <clears throat> it's, it's the shock. How can this be since I'm a virgin? This angel Gabriel gives her this news. You're going to bear uh, the Messiah. Well, how, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Shock. That, that could be controversial, disgraceful, embarrassing, socially awkward. Uh, how can this be? And then as she's processing it, and he's talking to her about it, she says, I am the Lord's servant. There's a transition from shock to that sense of, I, I, I accept this. And then finally, may your word to me be fulfilled. Can you imagine the smile? So you've gone from shock to delight. Uh, let me say a word about Mary. Um, perhaps some of you, like me, uh, started out uh, in a Catholic environment. I went to Catholic school. I got the scars to prove it. And, um, and uh, some of you grew up in a Protestant environment. Uh, either way, you have an attitude about Mary. Unfortunately, the Protestant attitude to Mary has been very defensive and sort of held at arm's length uh, because of their reaction to a Catholic theology of Mary, which is to say Mary was one spectacular woman who was an incredible role model and an example of discipleship. And, and as, these, as these thinkers, especially as after you finish the first century, you get into the second century, and they're saying, how do we, how do we talk about Mary respectfully and reverently and, and process her significance? And unfortunately, uh, the Greek word for, for, the mother, for, for applied to Mary is theotokos, mother of God, theogod, tokos mom, God's mom. In, in, the, in Luke 1, you see Mary responding to being, being you, know, you know, the carrier of the Messiah, giving birth to the Messiah. 
But by the time you get to the second century, it's God's mom, Theotokos. How do you then explain that? The mother of God? That's a different thing than being the one who gave birth to Jesus. But now that's the mother of God. Theologically, how do you, how do you uh, handle that properly? One of the ways was to say, well, then Mary must be like Jesus, sinless. And so a, a concept eventually was developed called uh, the Immaculate Conception. Uh, many Protestants think the Immaculate Conception is a description of Jesus being born of a virgin uh, impregnated by the Spirit of God. But the Immaculate Conception is actually an explanation theologically for Mary. If she's the mother of God, she must be sinless like God. Uh, and then that puts her in a, in a very different category of, of reverence to the point that, well, maybe perhaps we should pray to Mary. Uh, maybe we should see Mary as you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Mary. Uh, and that's off-putting to Protestants. Um, the fact is that Theotokos is a description. And so if we let go of that mother of God and, and not try to be so rational, we say everything has to have this perfect explanation. You stop doing things like that, or like John Calvin saying, hey, you know, if God is so powerful and it's all about his grace and his sovereignty, some people have chosen to go to heaven and some people have chosen to go to hell. It's a very bad theological outcome driven by a desire to be rational and deal with the whole picture, nail it all down. The word of God gives us enough for us to respond to God. May your word to me be fulfilled. And there's a lot of dangling things out there that we want resolved that we cannot resolve in this life. One of them being Mary. Mary is this incredible human example of God's goodness and graciousness. She is an absolute paragon of discipleship. If you want a role model, male or female, if you want a role model for what it means to walk with God, Mary is a good place to start. Uh, and, and if you come out of a Catholic background and you're thinking, well, am I being irreverent by not uh, you know, uh, giving Mary this larger status? No, you're not. Just focus on the fact that in Luke 1, you can get everything you need to know about Mary. And it's all good. And we see her going from shock uh, to delight. The absolute obedience and trust of Mary is the example for every single one of us. Was Mary a human being like any human being? Apparently so. And that's good enough for God. And so perhaps it's good enough for us. Secondly, you see with Joseph. Uh, we don't get Joseph's literal words like we do with Mary, but we, we see the scenario describing Joseph's response. And so here's basically what the message is from Joseph. His response starts out in shock saying, I must protect Mary from disgrace or death. He said, Joseph thought this, and so let's just put that into, into words. He was concerned that Mary would be disgraced. Hey, you're pregnant. I, I'm shocked. He's shocked. How did this happen? That's not the Mary I know. And, and it could ultimately, technically, lead to death in the sense that, hey, you're going to be stoned for adultery. Because you're betrothed to this man, though you haven't consummated the, the marriage, you're betrothed, it's, it's as good as marriage in terms of the official aspect of it. And if you're now pregnant by somebody else because Joseph's shocked, doesn't understand what happened, uh, that could be grounds for not just disgrace but death. So Joseph's concern is that, okay, what could I do? He's a noble man, he loves this woman, I'll divorce her quietly. So he's going from shock to, okay, what's my plan? A typical guy thing, I think I have an answer and there's a plan in here somewhere. And so he's on it, right? What's my plan? What's the best plan in a bad situation? I'll divorce her quietly. At this point, God intervenes in a dream and explains things to him. Joseph, here's what's going on. And Joseph says, ah. Oh. And he lets go of the shock, the pain, the heartache, the sense that perhaps they have been betrayed. 
And now he says, oh my gosh, what a delight. I will welcome her as my wife in God's chosen vessel for bearing Israel's Messiah. Is that not a beautiful picture? I hope, like Mary, like Joseph, as you deal with big, tough issues in your life, you can start out with the inevitable shock, right, or denial. That can't be happening. This can't be happening to me. And, and move from that place of shock and denial to a sense of acceptance, not in denying the reality of what you feel or what's happened, but acknowledging the fact that God can do something in here that we might not be privy to until we lean in and trust him. It's not putting your brain in neutral. It's putting your heart and your mind in full gear with him. And so wouldn't it be great if we were, if we were, we'd be able to say as we deal with situations, Lord, perhaps this is going to be part of uh, your chosen vessel to shape me, to deepen me, to grow me up, to do your will in and through me, even if it's at some cost of pain and suffering to me. Uh, this is partly why the Christmas story is so offensive in our culture. It's got too much messiness in it. It doesn't retail well. Had a really lousy day. Your fiance came and told you she was pregnant by God. Go shopping. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, and not to mock the celebration aspect of Christmas, but to say we need to go deep with God in this narrative so that we can go deep in the narrative of our own life. That we could say, okay, so Lord, what is your purpose? What is your plan? How do I understand your will? How do I lean into you, trusting you? In the process, we actually do become wise and discerning, not gullible and naive. One of the, one of the rifts culturally on, on, the, on the birth narrative of Jesus, it's just naive. Therefore, always look on the bright side of life, right? You get these crazy movies that, that are funny and, 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 and poke fun at this, but don't really get to the depth of, um, of this. So when you go into Matthew 1 and 2, you get a way better version of the Christmas story than watching the life of Brian, is what I'm saying. So here's the thing. They were both, Mary, uh, Mary and Joseph, both descendants of David through whom Messiah would be born. I just gave you a summary of the two genealogies in Matthew and Luke. The entire genealogy of Matthew, the entire genealogy of Luke are meant to tell you that they were both descendants of David through whom Messiah would be born. In those two genealogies, which is a shame to skip over because they are, they are incredibly deep and profound narratives of God's work in people. Five women are, no, are in the genealogies. I wish I could tell you all five stories are mind-boggling, inspiring stories. Joseph is listed twice. One, uh, he's listed as the son of his own birth father. The other time, he's listed as the son of his father-in-law. So Mary and Joseph are both accounted for in the, in the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. So the, 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 the summary that I, the formula that I come up with is this. He plus her equals heroic. His genealogy, her genealogy, their faithfulness to God in this shocking, surprising, delightful situation uh, is heroic. Does that sound like hyperbole to you? Uh, how so? How could they be heroic? Well, though they faced family criticism, social ostracism, and life-threatening personal risk, we'll talk more about that next week in the conflict, they trusted in the Lord. I'd say that counts as heroic. Let me tell you why. <clears throat> uh, heroic are characteristics one would expect or describe in a hero, like brave, courageous, valiant, valorous, bold, focused, resilient, committed, daring, audacious, and humble. Does that sound about right to you? 
as you apply it to Mary and Joseph? What's interesting is no hero, uh, every, every hero claims, it doesn't claim anything. They hold on to the last thing I said, humble. They would be the first to say, no, I'm not a hero. I just do my job. I'm just a first responder. I get paid for doing this, right? Or hey, somebody had to jump in the pool. Somebody had to go out and save the, the guy who had, you know, thought he was going to go surf the 25-foot wave. But we would say, no, the way you acted has all the qualities of a hero. And here's the beautiful thing, the big surprise. Mary and Joseph were everyday people walking with God every day. When people are serious about walking with God every day, they inevitably, naturally, intuitively do the heroic. In our culture, it's heroic to tell the truth. If you don't think so, read the newspaper. Uh, lying has become a, a strategy and a tactic in our culture, right? At every level in our culture, it's become a strategy and a tactic. Data is fudged in labs. For those of you who work in labs, you know that. And you're constantly on guard for that. Apparently, information is, is, is um, gamed in, in Washington, D.C. I've heard that. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but you look around the world and you realize we live in a world that is lying and scheming and rationalizing uh, false stuff. So when people are honest and people are humble, when people are, are truly compassionate with nothing in it for them, all of a sudden you say, that sounds heroic to me. You're doing things that are ennobling, that make me say, why do you do that, right? You always want to ask a hero, why did you do that? And of course, they usually say things like, well, it needed to be done. It was the right thing to do. But part of it was that they said, there was, I had an intuitive sense of what was right and no matter what it cost me, I needed to do that. And that inevitably is heroic. Not self-aggrandizing, not, not pointing to oneself, but it's just one of those things you do. The Bible would say you are blessing people when you live like that. You're bringing God in close to the human experience when you act like that. And the only category we have, because we, we, we usually don't want to say thank God for that, but when we do say thank God for that, we're saying thank God that this person was willing to be what we would conventionally call heroic. So the shepherds were surprised by Jesus' birth, and the angel said, don't be afraid, go check this out. As was Herod and the chief priests, who we'll talk about next week, they were a very much more complicated group. They, they stayed in that whole shock part of it, and then they immediately said, this is so shocking, we've got to do something about it, and it wasn't about delight. We'll talk about that next week. The people, including Jesus' family and, and then his disciples, when he started his public ministry, were also surprised by Jesus' ministry. They had no category for this, right? If you, and now, if you're not familiar reading the Bible, you might think, oh, the Bible is just this whole book to support all this stuff. When I first started reading the Bible for the first time, what I was shocked by is how messy it was. It told about real people doing really people-like things, were the, like the things I would do that were just so compromised and crazy that I thought, my gosh, this is such a real book. How could this be about God? It's about a very messy world where people do really crazy things that why would God want to be associated with us? And yet, the word of God will make it clear to you, uh, really powerfully clear to you, um, that this is a shocking, surprising thing that God is doing in Jesus. So you start in Matthew 13. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. How could somebody we know be this? Now, it's interesting. Another little uh, uh, theological standoff between the two groups of people would be that Mary was a perpetual virgin her entire life. 
again, trying to be respectful and reverent to say Mary is in a special category. The fact is here in Scripture it says that she had children. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and sisters unnamed. Which is awesome, don't you think? As a woman, what's your, who's your role model for being a mom? I'd say Mary is a pretty good role model. Uh, as a man, what's the role model you should look for in a woman? It would be Mary. Now, if Mary is so aloof and removed from human experience, it bec- she becomes out of touch. She can't be a role model. Uh, she becomes untouchable. And anything you'd say would be maybe offensive. But all of a sudden, you realize this is a real woman honoring God, glorifying God. Uh, you wonder, wow, it must have been really fun to have Mary as a mom, as a wife, as a friend. This woman who was so resilient, so go for it, that, that, that she knew that she was free to do even outrageous things if that's what God was commanding her to do. He goes on. Uh, he went down to Capernaum. Nazareth is a little bit higher up. He goes down to the water, the Sea of Galilee, and he says, it says that um, on the Sabbath he taught the people, and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So there's Galilee in the north, Judea in the south. So the whole country is buzzing uh, with Jesus. Now, one of the things is, you know, in the midst of that, they said, where did he get this? Where did he get this? And I bet there were people in these crowds who said, oh my gosh, that's the kid. That's the kid. Remember 20 years ago, we were in the temple, and that 12-year-old kid was hanging out for three days, and he kept asking amazing questions and coming up with very astute observations about God's word. Remember that kid? Yeah, I remember that kid. His mom and dad came, and they were upset because he had stayed behind in Jerusalem and they were on the way back to Galilee. That's the kid. Where did he get it? He sat there with the chief priests and the authorities of the word and listened and soaked it in and wrestled with the implications of it. Now, having been commissioned to his ministry by God, he is truly speaking with authority that even the theologians of the day could say, that's it. That's it. Or I'd never thought of it that way. Can you relate to these descriptions of Jesus? Have you experienced amazement in your relationship with Jesus? I can tell you I have. I can tell you initially before I came to know him, uh, I was offended. I don't need Jesus. The whole idea is fanciful, it's mythical, it's ridiculous. Everybody I know who relates to Jesus is a nutcase because they say they believe it and they don't act it. And so they're just like me, but I don't get why they have to go through the rituals they go through. And so here's a Catholic Protestant kid going, uh, it's, it's all um, ridiculous to me. When I came to know Jesus, that was entirely flipped upside down. It became the most attractive, inspirational, life-giving thing I could ever encounter. I was amazed. And then the idea that I could be in a relationship with this, this person, I didn't have a category. Has he helped you in ways evoking awe, surprise, gratitude, joy, hope, and praise in you? If not then you maybe don't know Jesus because this is what Jesus does in people's lives. Religious people might say, I don't know anything about that. I'm just very respectful and reverent toward God. Okay, great. But God wants more for you than that. He wants you to know him. He wants you to delight in him. He wants you to go through shock and awe and wonder and delight going, I had no idea. God has a better way of doing everything in life 
and none of it holds me back. All of it propels me forward into this sense of being fully engaged in my life, fully aware of his presence in my life and in the world, and wanting to be part of what he's doing in it. That is a radical, radical experience with the living God. This is not for a few small populations of religious people. This is for all people, all places, at all times. This is the dramatic and radical nature of the Christmas narrative. So Jesus also attracted significant conflict, which I said we'll look at next week. But the greatest surprise of all comes from Isaiah's description of the Messiah. We see this in Isaiah 53. Uh, Some folks are going to come up and read that right now. Isaiah 53 is a bombshell. And when you hear these words being read, from Isaiah 53, you might think, oh, okay, interesting, I don't get the bombshell part. I'll tell you why, but listen to the words very carefully. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that should be, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor has any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, we will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession. So why is this a bombshell? Uh, it's a bombshell because the expectation of the people, the chief priests, uh, the rabbis, uh, the, the population of Israel was that, you know what, you have Herod the Great, we have somebody greater on his way, the Messiah. Uh, you have Caesar to whom you give allegiance and worship, we have somebody bigger and better than Caesar. And so here they are waiting, waiting waiting, anticipating, expecting God's Messiah. And at just the right time, God's Messiah comes, and they don't know what to do with him. It's so counterintuitive. This cannot possibly be 
the Messiah of God. This is all about shame and suffering. What kind of Messiah is that? We want a king. We want a conqueror. We want, one, we want someone who everybody will say, oh my gosh. Instead, you give me somebody who we want to say, oh my God, why, why would you send that? Why would you send him? It was scandalous. And yet the song we sang earlier, that, that he took our shame, right? He embraced our shame. For the joy set before him, he experienced the shame of the cross, the indignity of the crucifixion. This is the counterintuitive bombshell that surprises us like nothing else. Jesus' birth has been celebrated for 2,000 years, not just for his amazing teaching and miracles, though those are very impressive. None of those were meant to be impressive in and of themselves. They were meant to confirm, to underline who he is. He is God in the flesh. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Talk about mind-boggling mysteries and conundrums. That's it. It was his suffering, sacrifice, and a shocking resurrection from the dead that confirmed his right, his credibility to be Messiah. So in the midst of Advent, we're, we're confronted with this shocking uh, uh, revelation of the kind of Messiah that God sent. Why? Because that's the kind of Messiah we need. He came and experienced life as a human being, yet was without sin. He showed us all the qualities of God that we would say, well, that, that sounds heroic. It's even better than heroic. It's like God himself. And this is the one who would not let anything stand in the way to rescue us. That's why his birth is such an event to celebrate, because life has come into the world. So no one saw it coming, or no one saw where it would go. Right? This is it? Where do we go from here? At the end of his life, at the crucifixion and his burial, the disciples said, it's over. It's done. The authorities who crucified him and buried him said, we took care of that. That's over. And yet it had just begun. And the resurrection just blows up the whole thing and, and reveals uh, what was at stake. We'll, we'll get to that uh, at Easter. So that's the big surprise. It's an empty tomb. The shame of the crucifixion, the shame of our wound is replaced by the surprise of salvation. We live in a culture that is so above using the word salvation. If somebody says, hey, are you saved? You go, oh, brother, give me a break. Am I saved? Uh, we, we, we disparage that. But the fact is all of us need to be saved. It's not humiliating and shameful to be saved. It's humiliating and, and shameful to live with our wound. And so as God sets us free to receive the gift of his salvation, we say, yeah, yeah, I am saved. And I'm being saved every day. It's this ongoing process of learning to walk with God. So he did this for you. And when you welcome him, you're saying yes to life. One of the things that gets in the way is we say, yes, but I'm from this tradition or I'm from this culture. I can't say yes. Let go of that. That's secondary. That's tertiary. The primary thing is, do you want life or not? Because life is the thing that God came to give us. How it fits in our cultural history, how it fits in our religious traditions and philosophical uh, wonderings uh, will sort itself out. But the main thing is, will you accept the life 
that God himself, God alone, can give you. This is not a minimizing message. This is a maximizing message. Do you want a full, you want full access to the rest of your life? Do you want to understand what it means to be the culture you're from? Do you want to understand what it means to be the, the gender you are, the person you are, your location, socially, economically, whatever? Do you want to make sense of your life? It starts with saying yes to life, to the life that God gave us in Christ. And so surprise yourself this Advent. Take a first step toward him. Make a fresh start with him. Prepare for shock and delight, I got to tell you. Because as you start to take him seriously, you will experience shock and you will experience delight. Because you'll start reading his word for the first time as somebody curious to know what this says to you. And you'll say, I'm shocked and I'm delighted. You'll start to see things in you that you want to hide. And God says, no, don't hide them. Confess them. Acknowledge them. That's when I'm going to meet you. We say, I'm shocked and I'm delighted. And you're going to come into community with people that you go, these people are screwed up as I am. I'm shocked. Churches are filled with screwed up people. If you want to find hypocrites, go to churches. That's where they should be. And we're all saying, I'm shocked that in my hypocrisy, God is sorting me out. And by his truth, he's setting me free. He's given me the courage to be an authentic human being and stop hiding or managing my image and start responding to his love, his grace, his truth, his life. Powerful stuff. Advent means surprise. I hope you enjoy every aspect of Advent as you go deep into the meaning of that statement. Advent means surprise. I hope you are by turns shocked, and I hope by turns you are absolutely delighted this Christmas season. So, Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, for everyone here. Whether this would be the first day of the beginning of a walk with you for someone here, or this would be a day uh, that marks a fresh start for someone whose faith has become tired and, and and, and irrelevant to them. Uh, I pray that in every way we would be open and responsive to this incredible gift of your presence among us. The declaration that you love us and that nothing and no one uh, can take your love away from us. That we are accepted by you through your grace as we open our hearts and our minds to you. May we become fully alive in you this Advent season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to continue in our worship now by receiving our tithes and offering. This is for those who call LJCC their home. So if you're our guest, please just be our guest. Enjoy the music. Enjoy watching the congregation respond. But if this is home and you came prepared to give a gift, this is the time to do that now. And if you filled out that connection card or that prayer request form, you can place it in the basket as the ushers come forward to receive that. Mm -hmm. 
feel the peace of God moving through this place over you. It's like being in a sleeping bag at 10,000 feet, looking at stars shooting across the Milky Way. You're snug as a bug in a rug. And you're looking at something so magnificent, you can't believe you get to be a part of it. That's what God is calling us to in Advent, to be part of this magnificent effort, this accomplished mission to save the world, created by Him, loved by Him, and lost through our own disobedience toward Him. So now open your hearts and your minds to Him for the first time, yet again. Take that step, be renewed, because God wants you to be so alive you look just like him. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you could ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.